Well, can we all just bow together, please, and let us uh, come before the Lord, and we will seek His face in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, we come afresh to Thee. We rejoice today that we're privileged to meet in this fashion and assemble ourselves around the things of God. Lord, we bless Thee for Thy Son, our Saviour, the one mediator between God and men. And we thank Thee that on the ground and the basis of His merit, we have access into Thy throne room, into the courts above, where we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And, O Lord, as we come before Thee, we come with gladness, we come rejoicing in Thy day, that Thou set aside for us this day that is given over to gatherings in the house of God, times with our families, meeting around the things of the Lord. We thank Thee for the blessings of the Sabbath, and we pray, Lord, that Thou wilt help us even to sanctify Thy day and to keep it holy. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt visit us as we gather together in the house of God and come down among us and all of our assemblies. O Lord, remember this time now as we meet in this Bible class. We pray for all who are present here and all who gather with us online. We pray, Lord, that Thy Spirit will move, Thy hand will be with us, and Thou will come and bless our hearts as we continue our study in these minor prophets. We thank Thee for these books that close out the Old Testament, these books that have so much to say to us about Christ, about the gospel, about our lives in this world, even about the very days in which we live. And, O Lord, how we pray that the Word of God will come with freshness to us, O Lord, fill me with Thy Spirit. Bless every brother and sister here. Touch our waiting hearts, we pray, and come down and breathe on us from heaven. Remember our youth Bible classes. Bless those who teach in those classes. Remember our Sunday school. And we pray, Lord, that in every gathering today Thy name will be glorified. Be with us now. Bless the church of God across this land. Yea, Lord, across this world. And on this day, we pray that there will be a great moving of Thy Spirit, and Thou wilt come in power and in grace. Hear us now, abide with us. We ask all this in Christ's name, and for His sake, amen and amen. Turn with me, please, to the book of Nahum. We move into the book of Nahum, and we turn to the first chapter, just to read through this chapter to give you an appreciation of at least what it's about in terms of these first verses of this little book. So, Nahum chapter 1, and let us turn there, let us hear the Word of God as we read together. Nahum 1 verse 1, the burden of Nineveh. And there you have the subject of the book set before you immediately. We'll say more about that. But that expression, the burden of Nineveh, the word burden, signifies that on Nahum's heart God had placed a burden a message with regard to the city of Nineveh and the people of Nineveh. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous and the Lord reigneth, or sorry, the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind, and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, 
and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world, and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn face, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. And we know that God will bless the reading of His Word to all of our hearts. The book of Nahum is the seventh of the twelve minor prophets. We know very little about Nahum himself, the man who wrote this short prophecy. However, the vital point is that Nahum was accepted by the ancient Jews as an authentic uh, revelation from God. I'm referring there to the book. This book was accepted by the ancient Jews as an authentic revelation. It was therefore part of the Old Testament canon of Scripture, and we should heed that and pay careful thought to that. Please remember that the ancient Jews were the custodians of the Old Testament. God gave His oracles to them, as you read in the book of Romans, and that is a reference to Scripture. And so they were the custodians of the Old Testament. They brought it together. They compiled the books. They were guided by the Holy Spirit, and the book of Nahum was held in no doubt whatsoever by the ancient Jews, and of course it's passed down to the New Testament church and her ministry, as we see before us. We can summarize the book of Nahum in two ways, even though we don't know much about him. We focus on the book, and we simply refer to the messenger and his message. I want to try to cover that today in this study. Now, taking first of all the messenger, that of course is Nahum. He was God's messenger. He was sent to serve in a very specific way in his day and in his time. And we are able to glean a few facts about this man as the messenger of God, and we can summarize them in a twofold way. 
the messenger. Number one, the description of the messenger. It's there in verse number one. And as it is with the writers of Scripture in general, name's name is given to this book that he penned. But he's described in verse one, it says, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. That term Elkishite signifies that Naaman, or sorry, Nahum, was a native of a place called Elkosh. The exact location of Elkosh is unknown, really. There are some uh, speculations, if you want to call them guesses, that's fine, but men of God have poured over this, wondering where Elkosh actually was. The view of Jerome, if you've ever heard of Jerome, I trust you have, uh, is that Elkosh was in Galilee. Jerome was the man who translated the Bible into Latin way, way back. What's called the Latin Vulgate version or translation of the Word of God. He was a man of God, and he did that great work at that time. But it was his view that Elkosh was in Galilee. Others held the view that Elkosh was in the region of Judah. That may have some merit, because if you look there at verse 15, you'll find that Judah is mentioned. And there's really no other reference to uh, Judah in the book, and therefore it is the opinion of some that he uh, was from Judah. So there are those views, and we have to leave it there because no one knows dogmatically or categorically where Nahum was from. Why the obscurity, we might ask, that surrounds some of these Old Testament characters? Because there are others of whom we know very little. Why does God veil over details like this that might satisfy our curiosity, uh, at least, with regard to something about them? And I believe that one answer that could be given is that it was to prevent men like these from receiving too much veneration, too much uh, exaltation even, because mankind has the tendency to take a man and know as much about him as you possibly can, and then kind of elevate him into some level of, of glory almost. And that's always a danger. And I believe that the Lord has veiled a lot of this information just to have us understand that name's not the important person, really. The important person is the Lord who gave the Word. Name was the channel through which it came. He was a prophet. He was a preacher. We don't know how widely he preached or how long he preached or anything like that. But in the final analysis, God knows all that. And so when we read this book of Nahum, the Lord is veiling Nahum from us, that we might hear what he has to say. I mean the Lord. And you remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 29, uh, that statement, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And this is one of the ways in which the Lord uh, prevents that, by hiding a man just about altogether. But the name Nahum is an interesting name. It means comfort or consolation. It's really a shortened form of Nehemiah. And the name Nehemiah also means comfort or the consolation of Jehovah. And so that's the sense of Nahum's name. He has a name that signifies comfort and consolation. It comes from Jehovah. Now, there's an irony in the meaning of his name, because in his times, Nahum brought mainly only a message of judgment, a message of judgment to the Ninevites, or with regard to the Ninevites. 
Nahum was not sent, as far as the record is concerned here, he was not sent to evangelize. We'll, we'll, we'll mention Jonah uh, shortly, but you remember Jonah was sent to Nineveh. He was sent to evangelize. Nahum wasn't. He was not sent to evangelize. He saw no converts in Nineveh in his day and time, and yet he was upheld by the consolation of his God as he faithfully delivered what the Lord gave him to pen. If you look at verse 7 here, this verse stands out very, very uh, powerfully in the first chapter. Because the first chapter, let me just say as you turn your eyes to that verse 7, the first chapter is a kind of a psalm, you might say, that is an elevation of God in His awful holiness, God in His awful uh, justice, His wrath. And remember, the whole scene has been set up with regard to what's going to happen to Nineveh. That's why the first line is the burden of Nineveh. It's all about Nineveh, what's going to happen to Nineveh. And the first view that's given is a view of God in His great justice and wrath and holiness. And so, when you read down through these verses, it's like reading a psalm uh, that you'd find in the book of Psalms, outlining God's justice, holiness, His magnificence, His sovereignty, His irresistible power, and so on. And yet, verse 7 says this, "'The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble.'" and he knoweth them that trust in him. And you know, that verse stands in this chapter almost completely out of character with the whole chap chapter because everything is about uh, justice and wrath and, and what's coming upon Nineveh. And then suddenly you have this statement in verse number 7, and I believe that was a word in season to, to name so because he, he is sent with a very heavy message, with a very terrible message, and no doubt he felt the weight of it and felt the, the awful import of what he had to say. And so, because his name means consolation, and then you have this statement in verse 7, surely the Lord is showing to Nahum, I'm your stronghold. I'm your consolation in the day of trouble. And how wonderful that is. That's a word for every child of God, that the Lord himself is our stronghold in the day of trouble he knows those who trust in Him. So, there are some details about the messenger, this man, Nahum, or the description of this man, Nahum, the Elkishite, and a few details that we can glean about the meaning of his name. We move on, on to this heading of the messenger. Look at the date of the messenger, the date or the time of Nahum's ministry as God's messenger. It can be gleaned from internal detail to begin with. I want you to turn to chapter 3 and look with me at verse number 8. Uh, chapter 3, verse 8. And there's a question asked here. Art thou better than populous No, that was situated among the rivers, that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea, and her wall was from the sea? Now, this question is asked of the Ninevites. But in asking this question, or putting it to the Ninevites, are you better? Then the Lord refers to another city. as a city that I would guess very few have ever noticed in the Bible in terms of a name, because you have the word no, and you might wonder at that. It's got a capital N on your translation there, and therefore it does signify a place. And it's described as Populous no. 
the word populous, as you could understand, is a word that signifies a multitude. And the Hebrew word for populous is the Hebrew word Ammon. And so, the full name in the Hebrew language of this place is No Ammon. It's how you uh, work out what's here. Populous No, it's a, a name of a city. I'm going to tell you about that city in a moment, but that's the full name of the city. It's called Populous No here, but the word Populous is Ammon, therefore it is No Ammon or No Ammon, whatever way you want to pronounce it. No Ammon was an ancient uh, Egyptian city. It has lain in ruins for 2,700 years. You actually can go today to Egypt and you will, you'll be able to see the ruins of that city. They're lying there still within another city in the land of Egypt, a city called Thebes. And there, there actually is a city called Thebes or Thebes, again, whatever way you pronounce these particular words. That city still stands, but inside it, there are all these ruins. They are the ruins of this old city called Populous No or No Ammon. Now, notice what Nahum 3, verse 8 actually shows us. According to this verse, at the time of the writing of this prophecy, No Ammon or Populous No was already destroyed. That's the inference of verse 8. Art thou better than populous No, that was situate among the rivers, the rivers of Egypt, the waters of Egypt, that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea, and her wall was from the sea. It was a tremendous city. It was a strong city. This city, we'll just call it No here, and yet it was utterly destroyed. It was destroyed in 663 B.C., and that we learn from the historians of those days. And that ties in with biblical chronology. It was destroyed by the Assyrians. I want you to get this picture here, because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And the Assyrians in 663, when they were still a strong empire and kingdom, destroyed that Egyptian city that's in view there in verse number 8. The, the leader of the Assyrians at that time was a man called Aser Banapal. And if you take the first part of his name, Aser, it is, it is related directly to the word Assyria. And so you had Aser Banapal, who was the emperor at that time, and under his leadership, this city was destroyed. Now, Nineveh was destroyed. That's what the book's all about here. That's the message of Nahum, to show that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And Nineveh was destroyed in 612 B.C. So, by the time Nineveh was destroyed, which was shortly after Nahum prophesied, by the time that happened, about 50 years had passed by since the destruction of this Egyptian city called No. And so, it's inside that time frame from 663 to 612 B.C., and remember when you're on that side of the cross before Christ, you work your way down in numbering with regard to dates and time. And so we're coming down from 663 B.C. to 612 B.C. And in that time frame, that is when Nahum lived somewhere in there. It's all we can really say. 
and he ministered and he delivered this book. Uh, obviously, he delivered this prophecy before Nahum, sorry, before Nineveh was destroyed. So I hope you've got that picture. I know there's a lot of detail there. And again, I say to you, if you want the notes, I can give them to you just so you can have those details. Because it is interesting just to see how all these things come together in, in the whole chronology of Scripture and even the chronology of those times. Now, these details, here's the point. These details would have conveyed great encouragement to Nahum and God's people by referring to the previous fall of Noamon, the Egyptian city, and predicting the certain fall of Nineveh, the Lord revealed that the brutal and the blasphemous power of the Assyrians over His people was soon to be broken. Because that was the state of affairs, you see. In those times, Assyria reigned. And Assyria was a brutal empire and also a very blasphemous empire. And I will show you that a little later here today in this study. And yet the end is coming for Assyria. And that meant that for God's people there was relief in view. Because the Lord is showing through Nahum that just as He toppled populous no through the Assyrians. This is the ironic thing. It was the Assyrians who overthrew that city. And now the Ninevites or the Assyrians, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, you see, in those days. Nineveh is going to be overthrown, and nothing can stop that from happening any more than the overthrow of No by the Assyrians could have been stopped. Who was it who overthrew Nineveh? It was a coalition of powers, the Medes and the Babylonians. And that's all part of biblical history, too. You know the great empires, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medes and the Persians. And for a short space, the Medes and the Babylonians came together, formed a coalition. They moved against Nineveh, therefore against Syria or Assyria, because Assyria was the common en enemy of both uh, Babylon and the Medes and Persians. And they overthrew the city of Nineveh in 612 B.C. So there's something about the date, the time frame, when what you have in Nahum actually took place. And it's good to be able to glean that and even see it here brought before us in this interesting question in Nahum chapter 3 and verse number 8. So that's something about the messenger. But then what about the message? Well, I've been touching on it already. I mean the message of this book. In the light of what we have already said, the prophecy of Nahum was God's message to Nineveh, the capital of the kingdom of Assyria. And the message was one of complete destruction. Now, it was to that same city that Jonah had been sent, as I've already mentioned, and we all know from our study whether in the Bible class here in Jonah, or your own reading of, of Jonah, everybody knows that Jonah was sent to Nineveh. But on that occasion, the whole city turned to the Lord. As we know from Jonah 3, there was a great awakening, and the whole city was converted to the Lord. And yet, about a hundred years later, because between Nahum and Jonah working backwards, uh, we find that there was a hundred years from the time of Jonah down to Nahum or Nahum back to Jonah. 
And so a hundred years after the great revival in Nineveh, they had turned back to their sin, back to their idolatry, and they were ripe for judgment. Chapter 3, verse 19, look at it, of Nahum. Notice this awful statement. Here is how the book of Nahum closes. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear thee brew it, that is the report of thee, shall clap the hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually. That's the closing word of the book of Nahum. And you see, you've got to see this, brethren and sisters. You're going to understand the book of Nahum. You've got to understand what it's all about. It's a message from God to a heathen Gentile empire and a, a, a kingdom that is focused on Nineveh, the capital. And the Lord is saying, because of thy wickedness, you're going to be destroyed. So between the two prophecies of Jonah and Nahum, there's a stark contrast. Jonah's message was actually at first one of judgment, a warning of judgment, but then the hope of repentance. If you look just back with me to Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 9, just to remind you of this, Jonah 3 verse number 9, and it says there, who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from His fierce anger that we perish not. Those are the words of the Ninevites. Those are the words of the king of Nineveh at that particular time. And he, he, had, he has heard Jonah's message and, uh, and he's smitten with conviction from him right down to the lowest man in the nation. And he asked this question, who can tell if God will turn and repent? And it's not that God changed his mind, let me say. God sent the message of destruction to Nineveh, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown with the purpose in view of bringing them to repentance. And the whole point is, it was Nineveh that repented. And of course, they repented because God's Spirit was at work. And that's why it says, who can tell if God will repent? You see, men and women, God doesn't change His mind. But God's uh, whole workings and operations must be seen within the confines, the time frame of how men react to what He says. And if you take Genesis 6, it talks there about God repenting that He had made man back in the days of Noah. It doesn't mean that God had changed His mind. It means that man had become so wicked and so ungodly that they are ripe for destruction. That's in Noah's day. And therefore, the Bible, to, get, to help us to understand it, but not teaching that God changes His mind, it says that God repents. But that is said within the context of man and his impenitence. He will not repent. Therefore, God decides, I'm going to destroy them. But he decided that already because he'd foreseen their sin from all eternity. We can't keep them down that road this morning. But I want you to understand what's going on here. In Jonah's day, there was a message of judgment, but then there was repentance. With regard to Nahum's message, it was one of judgment entirely, without even the possibility of repentance. Note that contrast, because it aptly sums up the dealings of God with a wicked world. 
with some of mankind, there is the sounding of the warning of judgment, as I said, that leads men to repentance in the mercy of God and the grace of God, because that's His purpose at that time with whether it's a nation or a city or whatever it might be, you find that there's a warning of judgment that God uses to bring people to repentance. But with the rest, there's no hope of mercy. Rather, divine wrath accumulates and it builds because of wickedness and impenitence. But there's one thing that we must always be clear about. God's wrath falls because of sin. You see, brethren and sisters, if the Lord took His hand of the whole world at any given moment, the whole world would plummet into such depths of sin that everybody would be swept away. But God has a purpose of grace to save some out of humanity, and therefore there are some who repent and there are some who turn to Him as the generations go by because He's working to that end. But the rest of mankind He leaves to the, the bent of their own will. He leaves to the direction which they're already going. I want you to think about that. It deals with an awful lot of issues. Uh, you hear people say, you know, why is everybody not saved? Uh, look at all those people out there in wherever, and they would just love to be saved if they only had a chance. That is not true. You talk to any missionary who is real and genuine, who goes to maybe some dark, dark region of the earth, and he does not find people who are just sitting there waiting for somebody to come and tell them about Christ. It's the very opposite. They're sitting there groveling to their idols. They're in the depths of their wickedness. And it's the mercy of God that the missionary goes to bring them the message of grace because God is going to save people there. But you see, he ha he's under no obligation to do that. The whole human race is so wicked, so ungodly, and that includes us in this meeting house now, that if we were left to ourselves, we would perish with the rest of mankind. And that would be nothing more than we deserve. That's the right approach. That's the biblical approach. Because we're all accountable for our sin. We're all responsible for our condition. Man, as he's fallen and ungodly and wicked before God, I tell you, he deserves nothing but wrath. And therefore, what a mercy when God awakens sinners and draws them and brings them unto himself. And so, the message here for, for Nineveh through Nahum and in his book is a message of utter judgment. No respite, no wrath. In other words, the cup of sin in Nineveh has risen to a level of such an enormous degree that God must move against them in wrath. It's the same with, as was with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same as was with the earth in Noah's day. And let me tell you something. We are moving into those days very rapidly. Where, right, well, right through to the end, there will be some saved. But the world is moving quickly. Um, when we say quickly, we've got to measure that 
in the light of God's control of time, but it's moving quickly toward awful judgment. In the middle of all this, look at chapter 115 of Nahum. Uh, it's a lovely verse. I want you just to look at it with me. And it says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him. Now that comes in, and again, in complete contrast to what you have before. For example, in verse 14, The Lord hath given a commandment, in Nahum 1.14, concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of thy house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. And suddenly it says this, Behold the mount, upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publish peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn face, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Here's another comforting word for Nahum. Remember, his name means consolation. Here's a cheering word that would have blessed Nahum's soul. You, those words in verse 15 are very, very similar to what you have there in Isaiah 52, verse number 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that, br that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. And you will know, I am sure some of you at least, that those words are quoted in Romans 10 about the gospel preacher today. Now, they don't mean that the preacher has beautiful feet. I don't want you to see my feet because they're not beautiful. But what it means is, it's the idea of a man coming with the gospel. It's a metaphor, figure of speech. Someone coming with the gospel, and this is how it is put. How beautiful are the feet. In other words, how wondrous and lovely that God would send a man on his feet to bring the gospel to sinners. And you know, those words are attributed to Christ first and foremost. And yet the, the um, striking thing is, just taking the Lord's feet, they are the feet that were nailed to the cross. That's what the world did with Christ. He came, the preacher without parallel, he came with a message of grace. He walked in the promised land, they had no other mode of transport except now and then sitting on the donkey's back. He walked everywhere, and men took him, and they nailed his feet to the tree. That's what the world does with the gospel and the gospel preacher and the whole message of salvation. It despises it. But you see, in God's sight, and the messenger is like this. That's how God describes him. And so, Nahum and Isaiah use the same words, basically. That's an example, by the way, of the truth that men who spake by the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, were moved to use the same expression. Isaiah used this expression. Nahum uses this expression. There was a Spirit given assent between them. There was a concurrence in the use of the same language as they served the Lord, as each man served the Lord in his own day and generation. They were given the same kind of, of message from God about uh, the consolation of the saints. You see, the, the words of Nahum 1.15 are words of deliverance in a dark day. Think about it. The whole book of Nahum is all about judgment. And yet, here's this little word in chapter 115. It's a word in a dark day. 
Notice the promise that's made in that verse. The wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. And there in the immediate context, the reference is to the Assyrian forces and a promise that they would no longer come against Judah as it happened previously. They were going to be cut off. Now, I want you to go to Isaiah 37. Please, go to that chapter because this is important and it's very, very fascinating to see uh, what happened here in an instance in the history of Assyria. Isaiah 37, verse number 33. And in these chapters, Isaiah 36, 37, and 38, the focus is on the times of Hezekiah, who, who reigned toward the end of Judah's existence. And the Assyrians, you see, were still very much the power in those days. So I'll just try to set up the context for you. But look at Isaiah 37, verse 33. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come against before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it, etc. Verse 35, I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. What's been said here is, in the days of Hezekiah, there was a temporary reprieve. God smote the Assyrians himself. And you see that in verse 36. Look at this verse. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and four score and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, that is, when the, God's people arose early in the morning, they were all dead corpses. God sent his angel, and he slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians in one night with one stroke. And no more did they come against Judah and against Jerusalem. And so you see, in Hezekiah's times, under Sennacherib, he's the king of Assyria at this point, under Sennacherib, the Assyrians invaded Judah and they laid siege on Jerusalem. And they spoke the greatest blasphemy against God. Look with me at Isaiah 37, verse 8 now, just to get an example of this. Isaiah 37, verse 8. So Rabshakeh returned. Rabshakeh is the general, as it were, of the Assyrian army. He returned and he found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. And he heard concerning uh, Terhaga, king of, of the, he heard say concerning Terhaga, king of Ethiopia, he has come forth to make war with thee. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah. So there's a bit of history there. Uh, there are wars everywhere. It shows you what the world was like in those days. Uh, the king of Assyria has a great empire. He's fighting against Judah. He wants to overthrow Jerusalem. And then suddenly, the Ethiopians come against the Assyrians, and he has to go back from Jerusalem and fight a war now against the Ethiopians. But he sends a messenger or messengers to Hezekiah. That's at the end of verse 9. So that's the historical setup here. Look at verse 10. Thus shall ye speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God, in whom thou trustest, deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly, and shalt thou be delivered? 
Have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed? And he mentions all these nations, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, the children of Eden which were in Telasser, where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arphad and the king of the city of Sepharvaim, uh, Hina and Eva. And so what is going on here? Uh, Sennacherib sends this message to Hezekiah. Don't let God deceive you into thinking that you're going to be delivered from me because look at all those other nations I have conquered and their gods could not deliver them. What's he saying? He's saying to Hezekiah, your God is just as powerless as the gods of these other nations. That is the greatest blasphemy. There's other places I could take you to. I don't have time here, but where they talked about way back in more ancient times where the enemy said that, well, God's the God of the hills and the, va- the, hills and the mountains. But he's not the God of the valleys. You remember that in the days of Elisha? That happened. That was said by the Syrians. And I tell you today that when people speak against God like that, he takes note. And it was against that background of that blasphemy that God cut off 185,000 Assyrians in one night. You know, you will will know this. You will have heard this maybe in the radio or wherever, read about it. The ungodly, they mock God with regard to what happened in, in, in ancient Bible times. For example, whenever Ezra went into the land of promise, God told them, slaughter every Canaanite. And the liberals, down through time, in Protestant churches so-called, have called God this. They have said that the God of the Old Testament is a dirty bully. That came from the mouths of men who walked in this land and in other places across the world of their days in Europe. The God of the Old Testament is a dirty bully. They don't understand what it means. Why did God say to Israel, cut off every Canaanite? Because the cup of sin of the Canaanites had risen to a level that God could no longer abide their wickedness. And so it was God's judgment perpetrated through His own, the armies of Israel. It was judgment on them for their sin. And let us keep that in mind, brethren and sisters. In every war that's ever fought in this world, the hand of God is not absent. The hand of God is at work. And down through history, what has happened over and over again? This kingdom has fallen, and that kingdom has fallen, and that nation has come to nothing. They have disappeared long ago. They're only mentioned now in history books. Why? Because God sent maybe another heathen nation and cut them off in judgment. And then that heathen nation that was His instrument, they're judged at some stage. And so God's in full control of history. And that's what you see here with regard to this whole story of Nahum. The invaders, the Assyrians, spoke their blasphemy against the Lord and in those days they suddenly were cut off. And now Nathan, in his, or sorry, Nahum, in his little book, he speaks of this final judgment that is coming upon Nineveh, upon the Assyrians. They have been dealt with 
in a temporary way at different times. God smote them, and yet they kept on sinning, and they kept on blaspheming. All those previous uh, instances of judgment on Assyria were warnings of something worse to come, but they wouldn't listen. Just like the world's not listening. I saw last night when I was looking on the internet at the news, see who's going to be our next prime minister. And I suddenly saw this little thing that caught my interest about celebrities, we'll call them that. That's what the world calls them. Debauched wretches is what they are. And I had a look at it, and it mentioned them one after the other, how all these entertainers, etc., etc., say there's no God. They don't believe in Him. They hate Him. They hate Him. Just as much as the Assyrians hated the God of Judah in Nahum's day. But let me tell you, my dear friend, when a man or a nation, a group of men, whatever it may be, when they get to the stage where their sin has come to the full, they will be cut off and they will never be heard of again in this world, really. And so none of us being told that there's no escape. So if you just go back to Nahum 1, as we draw near to a close here, and our time is moving on rapidly. Those words in chapter 115 have a future fulfillment. It says, just read it again, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn face, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Nahum in this verse, not only sees something that was true of his own day with regard to the Assyrians and being cut off, he could see to the end time. And that's what that verse, that's where it really ends up. It's a prophecy of the end time. You see, as we noted in Micah, the, 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 the term, the Assyrian, is a name given to the Antichrist who will be destroyed by the Lord Jesus at His second coming. That's clearly taught in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, where it says, Whom the Lord will destroy with the brightness of His coming. That's Antichrist. But please go with me again to Micah. Because Micah is just the previous book for one thing, so you don't have far to go. But uh, I mentioned this quickly in passing, I, I believe so when we looked at Micah. So look at Micah chapter 5 and verse number 5. Now think about this verse very carefully. It says, And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. When he shall tread on our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Now there's part of that verse not easy to understand, but it's the first part. This man shall be the peace. Now, who is that man? That's the question. Well, it's very easy to see. Verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, 
Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been of old from everlasting. That is Christ. We know that. No doubt about that. Verse 2 is the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. is quoted in the New Testament. It's absolutely clear. The person in verse 2 is Jesus Christ. And down through to verse 5, it's all about Jesus Christ directly. And now in verse 5, it says, This man, and the word man is supplied by the translators. It can be read, This one, this ruler, because he's called in verse 2 the ruler of Israel. He shall be the peace. Now notice this. When the Assyrian shall come into the land. Now do you see what I am getting to here? Jesus Christ was born. He lived his life. And it was the Romans who ruled in his day. And in fact, before the Lord was ever born, the Romans were already in the land. They had overthrown the whole of that part of the Middle East, or the Middle East, before Christ ever appeared. And when Christ did appear, there were no Assyrians because Assyria by that point had been utterly routed and destroyed and never rose again. So what does this verse mean? This man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. Now what's that land? My friend, that's not Northern Ireland. That's not England or America or wherever. You know, people have strange views. They must wear different glasses from me. They find uh, countries in the Bible that are never mentioned. Our land, that's the land of Israel. And so, who's the Assyrian there for? That's what I'm saying to you. In Old Testament prophecy, the Assyrian is the Antichrist. The Assyrian, like Sennacherib and others in that line, were types or prefigurations of the man of sin who will one day appear and who will overthrow nations. This is the point, brethren and sisters. The Bible makes this absolutely clear, and that will include Israel. He will go against Israel. He will come right into the land of Israel. And who's going to defeat him? Christ. At his coming, he will destroy Antichrist with the brightness of his coming. Even as that personage, and of course there's all the discussion, who exactly is he or will he be? I know there are different views, but that's not the point today. The Bible clearly shows us a personality who will appear in the end time, whom the Lord will destroy with the brightness of His coming. But prior to that, He will have moved against the Jews and against the church of God across the world. And then the Lord will arrive when the Assyrian has come into the land and He will destroy him. And that's what I'm saying to you. Nahum 1.15 has a future, um, a future import. It refers to last days. Time is gone. We'll leave it there, but I will come back to this book in the will of the Lord. I want you to look at it with me again because there's more I want to show you when you get to chapter 3. And maybe you'd like to do this in the meantime. Read Nahum 3, verse number 4. 
It says, because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot. This is all about Nineveh and Assyria, the mistress, mistress of witchcrafts, that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. Behold them against thee, saith the Lord. You read those words alongside Revelation 17, which is all about mystery Babylon the Great, the great uh, ungodly amalgamation, amalgamation of things that will happen in the end times, and you will find that the language is very much the same. But I can't do that today. We'll have to leave that to another time. But I'm just saying to you, have a read of that verse, and then Revelation 17, especially the first six verses of that chapter, and you will see the parallel with this verse. But let's bow in prayer. I trust that what we've seen today has given you a, something of an understanding of Nahum and that you will be able to know about this book to some degree. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we commend our ways to Thee, and we thank Thee for Thy Word, Thy Word that is always fresh, Thy Word that is so relevant, even in our own days, and has a relevance right through to the end times. And, O God, we do pray that You will bless Your Word to us, and You will help us to have a grasp of it, an understanding of it, Use it in our hearts and in our lives, and equip us to serve Thee in a wicked world. All around us, Lord, in that sense of things, there are many Sennacheribs, and the spirit of the Assyrians is still abroad, blasphemers and opponents of Thee. O Lord, defend Thine own name, defend Your gospel, and help us, just a, a little remnant O oh Lord, help us, we pray, to stand firmly and clearly upon Thy truth. Give us the consolations that Nahum received. We thank Thee that the Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And Lord, You said that those who put their trust in Thee are blessed. And so help us, we pray, and lead us on with Thee. Bless now this day, and grant Your presence and Your power. We ask this in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen.